You guys know better. Please stand up and greet those around you. And this is an opportunity for our corner pebble to please make their way. And those that are interested in the Christmas performance on the 20th to make their way also. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, welcome. Welcome to any visitors that we have today. My name is Michael Risk, and I'm one of the ministry staff here at Cornerstone. Uh, today, we're continuing our short series in the first six chapters of Nehemiah, and today we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 5. As we come to today's passage, would you please open up in prayer with me? Please pray with me. Our dear Heavenly Father, Father, we pray be with us as, a, as we come to your word. Father, I pray that you would challenge us, Lord, that you would change us. Lord, as we've sung, we pray that yeah, dry bones would come alive. Lord, we pray for your living and active word amongst us. Lord, that it would be, that would be just that, living and active and changing lives. Father, we pray be with each of us as we hear from your word now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. During our current climates, Christians have taken up polarizing views on whether we should wear a mask or not when we go outside. Not really a problem here in Tasmania. However, this has certainly been a hot topic in America. The issue that some Christians have had with masks is that to wear a mask was suggesting that your allegiance lies with the government rather than with Christ. I remember scrolling through Facebook and reading someone's comment saying, why are you chucking a stink about masks? Christian, you've been wearing a mask your whole life. Hypocrisy, taken from the Greek word hypocritus, which means play acting, acting in this pretend role, but not the real you. We see Jesus rebuking the Pharisees time and time again, calling them hypocrites. You play actors. You deceive people, pretending that you are righteous, but you're not. What you are is whitewashed tombs. Hypocrite. It's a name many here in the church have been called. Why? Because there are those in the church who call themselves Christian, but they are no different to the world around them. I'm sure there are many in this room who have worn a Christian mask at some point in their life. Here at church and among certain people, they seem to be a person redeemed and transformed by Christ. But then, though, but then in those certain social gatherings, in those certain situations, the mask is taken off, and the real you is seen. It's sad for me to say this, but there may be some in this room who are wearing a mask right now, they are sitting here amongst us. They are singing with us. They are praying with us. But as we leave our Sunday worship, their mask will come off. 
Friends, our passage today is an exhortation to the church to not be like the nations around you, to not be a hypocrite. Here in our passage in Nehemiah chapter 5, just like the nations were oppressing the Jews, we find the Jews are no different. In our passage, we see the Jews are also extorting from and oppressing their own flesh and blood, their own kinsmen. Our passage today is a warning to the church. Don't be like the nations around you. Don't be like the world, but walk in the fear of God. God's covenant people, the church must live in reverence and fear of God. I have three points that we're going to be working from today. Our first point, the people's outcry. Second, Nehemiah's rebuke, and third, Nehemiah's example. Let's have a look at that first point together. First point, the people's outcry. In verses 1 to 5, we see three separate cries. One from the poor, who are unable to support themselves. Another group saying they are having to mortgage fields, vineyards, and their homes to buy grain because of the famine. And then a third group saying, we had to borrow money for the king's tax. This cry is a response to the felt oppression. We actually read about such an outcry in the beginning of Exodus, where Israel is being oppressed by the Egyptians. Heavy burdens are being placed upon them. They are being oppressed by this foreign influence, this foreign nation. But as we look at our own passage, as we look at our own passage, who is causing this outcry among the Jews? It isn't the nations around them. It's their own kinsmen. Please have a look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says this. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. And many here would know what it feels like to be talked down to, made to feel small. And it hurts, doesn't this, when this happens? However, it especially hurts when these words and actions are done by a family member. With such a close person, there is a bond. There is trust. You have such ties where your lives meet and even overlap. So when such pain is given by a family member, It's all the more painful. At this outcry of the Jews is against their own family. Verse 5 highlights this again for us. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. In verse 5, we see the scope and powerlessness that is felt by the Jews. Sons and daughters have been enslaved. What does this mean? In the Old Testament, children could have been given to pay a debt known as debt slavery. We read in the book of Exodus 
We, are, we read and we are told that to pay a debt, a Hebrew could sell themselves or one of their children to pay a debt. In the case of a son, he would be a slave for six years. And then in the seventh year, the debt would be paid and he would be free. With daughters, this was not so. To pay a debt, sometimes daughters would be given as a second wife. Here in our passage, we can see there is real pain. There is real heartache among the Jews. There is a cry. They cry out and say, we have no means to stop this enslavement. We are powerless. We have nothing in our own means to stop this oppression. Do you hear their cry? Do you hear the cry of this real helplessness? Many of us here would remember the Beacon Fields mine collapse that happened in April 2006. I remember it vividly. It was all over the news. Two men, Brant Webb and Todd Russell, were trapped 14 days under meters and meters of rubble without any means to help themselves, requiring the aid of external help to get out of this mine alive. For these two men, there was real helplessness. They were powerless to help themselves, and the only way they could help them that could help them was some sort of external agent. Here in our passage, these Jews haven't got the means to help themselves, and this help needs to come from someone on the outside. There is a cry from within the Jews, a cry that someone on the outside will hear, someone that will rescue them. From this plight. Let me ask those of us here. Let me ask you at this point. Are any here crying out at the moment? Are any here struggling at the moment? Have any here got into a place where you feel you haven't got the means to help yourself? Christian, my brothers and sisters, I want to remind you at this point You are not alone. Just like the Jews cried out during the Exodus, in the midst of their plight, God was listening. Sometimes we can fall into the trap and think that the work of Christ is an event that happened in the past. However, the cross has ongoing work. Christ continues to work in our lives. Christ continues to intercede for us. He continues to help us. He continues to help us and grow us. I encourage you, in the midst of your cries for help, turn to Christ. Crying to God with our hardships, crying to God in our hardships should be a normal part of our Christian walk. Walter Brueggemann, a Christian theologian and scholar, said this. He said that when we remove lament from our Christian walk and only seek to praise God, then we remove from our covenant relationship the opportunity to cry out to God. And Kelly Capick, in his book, Embodied Hope, says this, when we choose not to lament, we harden our hearts. When we try to wall ourselves from suffering, we also wall ourselves from others and from God, who tells us that this pain is real, if temporary, by that requires our attention. Christian, are you crying out at the moment? Bring your cries 
to God. Are you crying out at the moment? Bring your cries also to the church. Here in our passage, in the midst of the Jews' plight, we see Nehemiah listening. And most of us would have received a corner post, either by email or as we walked in today. On the back of our corner post, it says, Need spiritual support? Contact an elder. Need practical support? Contact a deacon. Are these contact details are there if you need the church? This message is not a tokenistic message, but an invitation to contact us if you find yourself crying out. Nehemiah hears the cry of the Jews, and then we see him responding. And this leads to our second point. Point number two, Nehemiah's rebuke. In verse 6, Nehemiah heard their outcry, and he became angry. Verse 7, we are told he pondered this in his mind. He was controlling his anger and sought how best to respond to these Jewish oppressors. And after some internal deliberation, we see him acting. And he says and accuses these nobles and officials and says to them, you are charging your own people interest. In his commentary, Greg Goswell says that although many English translations say that an interest was placed on the people, he however says that rather the Jews were coercing and forcing their vulnerable kinsmen to give a pledge, a pledge in the form of fields, in the form of children, as an incentive to those who owed money to pay the debt faster. What a terrible thing to be doing that the very thing that would have helped pay the debt faster, the help of their fields, their vineyards, the help of their children, is now being used ironically as an incentive to try and pay the debt faster. Can you see why Nehemiah is angry? Can you see why Nehemiah is angry? Their own flesh and blood have created a system of oppression which their vulnerable family can't get out of. So Nehemiah, after accusing these nobles, calls a great assembly against them and says to them, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. Nehemiah is saying, you are acting no differently to the nations around you. They were oppressing us. And now, they have brought, now we have been brought back. They have been brought back to us, back to Jerusalem. And what do we find? We find that they are still being oppressed. Being oppressed by, not by the Persians, though. Not by some foreign influence. But he says, by you. You. Their own flesh and blood. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the approach of our Gentile enemies? And Nehemiah has two reasons to be angry. One, because of the oppression felt by the poor Jews, by their rich kinsmen. And then second, because this behavior could be used as a reproach by their Gentile enemies. 
This behavior could discredit the Jews and their claim that they are God's people doing God's work. God has instructed his people to build for him a house, to build a great city, and for, the pe- and for his people to worship him again. He is their God, and they as his people. But look, there are some who aren't acting like God's people. Why? Because they're no different to the nations around them. They are more concerned with lining their own pockets rather than worshipping God. Are there any in this room? Are there any in this room that are more concerned for their own pockets rather than God's kingdom? Are there any in this room that are more concerned building their own kingdom rather than God's? My friends, if I'm talking with you, if I'm talking to you, then you need to repent. You need to turn away from this behavior. You need to stop wearing a mask. You need to repent and start living for God. In verses 10 and 11, Nehemiah says, Can't you see what I, my brothers, and my men are doing? They are trying to help the poor and oppressed. He says, you need to stop what you're doing. Repent and give back what belongs to your kinsmen, namely the pledges that you have extorted from them. Verse 12 suggests that these nobles see the error of their ways, and they return the pledges, and an oath was made. I want each of us to look at verse 13. Please have a look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13 says this. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and, em- be shaken out and emptied. At this, ho- at this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Uh, verse 13. It's a threat, isn't it? It's a threat to those who line their pockets that God would empty them, that God would enact justice towards those who did and do this injustice. I want to suggest that this is a warning to Christians to act like Christians. This is a warning to Christians not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk. So again... Again, if there are any here who are talking the talk, but not walking the walk, if I'm talking to you, if the Holy Spirit is prompting you as I say this, repent. Stop wearing a mask. Stop acting like a Christian only on Sunday, but live every day for God. Our text is exhorting each of us, live and walk in the fear of God. But if you don't know how to walk the walk, you don't know what it means to live like a Christian, then you need to look to someone who does. And this leads us to our third point. Point number three, Nehemiah's example. Let's read together from verse 14 to 19. 
Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took forty shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and even ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. And Nehemiah says that he was not like the other governors before him. In Scripture, we are only aware of three other governors, Gedaliah, Sheshbazzar, and Zerubbabel. Nehemiah says he wasn't like those before him. He didn't exploit the people, even though he had the right to. Why? Or verse 15, because out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. This could also be translated, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah is more concerned with honoring God rather than lining his own pockets. Nehemiah wants to bring glory to God rather than acquiring glory for himself. Nehemiah wants God's name to be praised rather than ridiculed. So he sets the example. As governor, he sets an example to the nobles and officials not to exploit, but to serve. Verse 10 says that he gave money and grain at his own expense. Verse 18 says that he did not demand the food allowance for the governor. In the NIV, verse 18 says this, Each day one ox, six sheep, and some poultry were, were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. As some translations suggest that this wasn't prepared for Nehemiah, but was prepared by Nehemiah. That instead of placing demands on the people out of his own expense, he supplied the food and wine himself. The ESV says it like this. At my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, at every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. The rendering found in the ESV is consistent with Nehemiah's character of what we read about in verse 10. To not burden people, he gave from his own pocket rather than theirs. And Nehemiah sets an example to follow, to serve rather than be served. Jesus said this in the Gospel of Mark, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, reminds us 
that we should do good by those around us, especially those who are Christians. So Christian, my brothers and sisters, are you serving and doing good by those around you? Are you showing how the gospel has changed and transformed you? And Nehemiah does good because he wants to bring glory to God. He does this because of God's love. He does this because of God's faithfulness to the covenant people in freeing them and bringing them out of exile. What about us? We have been given so much more than Nehemiah. The Jews were taken from captivity, from foreign enslavement. We, however, in Jesus, have been saved from sinful enslavement. We see God's love not in the return from the exile. We see God's love in the cross. In the cross, we are restored and reconciled back to the Father. And with this reconciliation, we are given all the promises found in Christ. Freedom from sin. Adoption as sons. Eternal life. A hope that has been secured for us in Jesus. A hope that has been stored for us in heaven. Nehemiah looked forward to the day where they would be fully restored in the promised land. No longer under foreign influence, but a free nation able to serve God. As Christians, we fix our eyes on eternity. Our home is with the Father. Our home isn't here. It's with the Father. Where the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin will be completely done away with. This is the good news. This is the gospel. The reason we are called to do good works is because we have been set apart to do good works, having been restored and reconciled to the Father. We respond to this great work of what Christ has done by praising Him and declaring to those around us this great work. We do this in our service to others. We do this in in our service to one another. We let the gospel be seen in our lives. This is why hypocrisy is so dangerous. This is why hypocrisy is so dangerous. For to act like the nations around us, the world around us, and not like a man or woman redeemed by Christ, is to bring shame to him. It's to bring shame to Christ. So Christian, my brothers and sisters, through your example, show to be someone who has been redeemed by Christ. Show to others that you have been redeemed by Christ. Model this to other Christians. If you aren't sure what it means to live having been redeemed by Christ, well, first and foremost, come to God's Word. Read God's Word. 
see what it says about how to live as a Christian, knowing what Christ has done for us. Look what God says, word says of what it means to be a Christian. Second, be looking to those in the church who are modeling and living out the gospel. As Paul said to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So to the young people in the church, let me say a word to you. There are many things in this world that will influence you. Can I encourage you to find an older person to meet up with? And older people, you know who you are by the gray hairs in your head? Older people, if you aren't meeting up with a younger person, prayerfully consider who you can meet up with. In the book of Titus some months ago, we were reminded that God has instructed our older men and older women to train up the next generation, to set an example for them. Today we are reminded in our passage to set an example to others, to serve because Jesus first served us, to love because he first loved us. Let me end with this. When people look at you, what do they see? Do they see someone redeemed and transformed by Christ? Do they see someone living out the gospel? Or do they see someone wearing a mask? Someone who knows the songs that we sing here on Sunday? Someone who knows all the answers to the Bible questions? But someone who is more interested in living for themselves rather than God? If I'm talking to you, if I'm talking to you, I encourage you to repent. Stop living for yourself. Stop wearing a mask. Start living for God. When people look at us, at the people within Cornerstone, I want those around us to see people transformed by Christ. I want those around us to look at us and to see something so profoundly different. That through this difference, people would be jealous for what we have. A great hope that has been stored for us and secured for us in the Lord Jesus. I want people to look at us. I want people to be jealous for what we have. And they would ask us, what is this great hope that we have? I want people to see you. And I want people to see the gospel. I want to see people look at you and see what Jesus is doing in your life, what he has done, what he's doing, and what he will do. I want people to see you. I want people to see Cornerstone Church, and I want to see them seeing the gospel. Let us not be a church that affirms the stereotype that Christians are hypocrites. Let us be a church that, that declares with our words and our actions what Christ has done. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. 
Father, we confess for those times we have worn a mask and have acted like the world around us rather than your redeemed and adopted child. Our Father, forgive us for those times. Our Father, we pray by your Spirit to help us live lives changed and shaped by the gospel. Our Father, we pray that when the world sees us, they would see lives transformed by Jesus. We pray, Father, that when people see us, they would be jealous for what we have and ask us of this great hope. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.